when practicing on a retreat that lasts three months, it's normal there will be times when the practice seems to go well, the mind is more calm and stable, and there'll be other times where the practice doesn't seem to go so well. There's more mental agitation, disturbances. So part of the practice is learning to accept that fact and deal with it skillfully and learn from the downs as well as the ups. Learn from when things are not going well, just as learning from when things do go well. Just in the basic application of the mind to the development of sati sampajanya, mindfulness, clear comprehension in the course of one day you'll notice how your efforts and application to bringing up mindfulness can wax and wane like the moon and the, there are periods where we put forth effort and become very composed, restrained, and mindfulness seems to be more continuous. And then there'll be periods in the day when it seems to lapse again and the mind is clouded over with all kinds of moods and thoughts, distraction, or gets caught into a lot of uh, external distraction particularly conversation and so on. So much of practice is returning to basics, back to square one, the beginner's mind, keep coming back to establishing mindfulness in the present moment and being willing to do that, seeing the benefit of it, so that those Moments of mindfulness, like the drips from the tap, join up and we have periods where the stream is more continuous and the mind calms down. From that we can get more insight into the nature of this body and mind, which can also help us in the periods where mindfulness lapses and defilements come back in to bother us. And we can use some of that accumulated insight to at least help us understand better our own defilements and develop more of a wise attitude how to deal with them. All the teachers from the Buddha down to the present day always 
remind us that we're aiming in practical terms to keep developing this quality of mindfulness, knowing experience from moment to moment in a, an equanimous way, not falling into delight, <coughs> delight or aversion for the conditions of this world, physical, mental, but rather to have a neutral knowing of conditions without judging them and without indulging in them. And this is the priority, you might say, in the practice is developing this quality of the mind in the middle, knowing things as they are in an unbiased way, unjudgmental way and not losing itself, getting caught into the attraction or the aversion to conditions. Whether we're standing, sitting, walking, lying down, to keep bringing up this uh, mindfulness, this place in the middle of events and conditions, body and mind, to know things as they are. And what supports this and in turn what mindfulness supports is wisdom. And we have to use wisdom as well to help sometimes restrain the mind, pull it back from its habitual attachment to pleasure and pain, delighting in and averse to experience. So here the all the monastic trainings and the Vinaya, the Tutangawatas, the different Ubayas, skillful means we can employ, we, we take them to help to develop more mindfulness and restrain and compose the mind from its old habits of falling into liking and disliking. And the more we practice, the more we might value some of these techniques, <coughs> even though they are sometimes difficult to apply with some effort and understanding of the value of them, then we can use them as tools to break through some of these mental habits and delusions we fall into. All the practice of sense restraint and restraint in the use of requisites, food and dwellings and so on, the basic monastic form. We use that to bring the mind back to the present moment. Ajahn Mahabua used to talk about one terror who was already quite well developed in his practice. He was determined to maintain this equanimity. So sometimes as he was walking out of the monastery on arms round, if he caught himself thinking about 
what food might be offered that day, proliferating around that. He had his own little practice. He would stop, turn around, return to his kuti, and he wouldn't eat that day as a way of teaching his own mind. You once done that one or two times, then the mind doesn't want to indulge in delighting in you know, mental proliferation, say, about food, that it knows it'll actually go without. So then it, the kalesas fall in line, as it were, and the mind returns to just mindful awareness without getting caught into a particular mood and proliferation. We can train like that in the different ways where we might see a need. We can devise our own methods to restrain the mind a little bit, to heighten our mindfulness, and obviously using patience and endurance and energy as well. I remember Lumpur put Tanio talking about his early years as a monk, how he was always judging the other monks around him, liking some, disliking others, so he chose to spend more time with the monks he disliked. Their characters were different from his, their likes and interests different from his, so he spent time with them to deliberately bring up or see this uh, negative mind state arising so he could actually practice being mindful of it and letting it go, returning to equanimity. So he could see if he just spent time with his friends, he'd always be getting what he wanted. The mind would be content in the short term, but the roots of discontent would not be addressed, wouldn't be sorted out. And any time he was with people he didn't particularly like or find things in common, he would find aversion arising. So he actually trained himself to be equanimous and even develop kindness, compassion to members of the community he didn't particularly like by spending time with them, watching his own mind. Nobody knew he was doing that. It was only very much later in his life that he related how he had been practicing. So developing this mindfulness in all postures, all situations, bringing the mind to the place in the middle where it's neither delighting in or averse to experience. This is the heart of our practice. Because life is a mixture of pleasant and unpleasant experiences, both internal, our own physical experience, our own mental activity, and then external. We sometimes develop ideals that the mind should be a certain way, should even with this practice, it should be mindful, should be equanimous, should have no proliferation, no suffering. But of course, sometimes we can't 
control the mind well enough, so what do we do then when it is caught into proliferation? Moods do arise. We have to develop both mindfulness and a skillful attitude how to deal with that. Use wisdom. Even to see the suffering from holding to an ideal that I shouldn't have any negativity or I shouldn't have any greed. So when anger arises or greed arises, then you get upset. But what's feeding that judgment and the mood of being upset, where it's the attachment to a desire, even the desire for Nibbana or for the end of suffering, to have a completely peaceful mind can still become an obstacle when we don't see it. So we have to keep following up with mindfulness and wisdom, investigating these things, getting to know a little bit more deeply what's going on. You're learning the mechanism by which suffering and confusion is arising in the mind, understanding where does it come from. What can we do to remedy it? Often the swings of moods can be very extreme from very peaceful states, one minute suddenly uh, rage the next or lust the next. In a very short space of time the moods can change quickly depending on conditions. Lumpur put talked again how in the early years one time walking on Pindapart going out of the monastery. The first house he came to in the village, the little boy of the house saw the monk coming. Usually they always say to their mum, the monk is coming, so the monk, the mother can prepare the food and bring it out to put in the monk's bowl. And this day, the boy for some reason was saying, the monk is coming but it's not a real monk, it's a fake monk. perhaps just being mischievous or for some reason saying these words. So Lumpur put sense of pride and self came up immediately. He said, mm, I'm a real monk. Who's he to say I'm a fake monk? Started to have negativity arise in the mind. But as he was waiting for the lady to come out with the food, he realized, well, if I do give in to anger at this point, then what the kid has said is true. I am a fake monk. Because a monk has to abandon aversion, cannot hold on to harmful negative states of mind towards oneself or others. So you had to work very hard to just recognize what was going on and abandon his negativity at that point. As he was walking through the village, he sort of just sorted that out and then later on in the same arms round, she was walking past a certain spot where there was a hole in the road. A young lady driving on a little motorcycle was just passing him and she hadn't seen this hole in the road where they were digging up the road. There was no protective barriers or anything in those days. She hadn't seen it and her 
motorcycle plunged into this hole and she was thrown off the motorcycle and ended up falling on Put, knocking him to the ground and she was actually ended up lying on top of him. And she was newly married, so very young, attractive lady. He was a young monk. He's got this young lady on top of him. So straight away he had to control any kind of lustful desire that might come up. So he went straight into his meditation object to establish mindfulness, make the mind peaceful. Composed himself until she got off, brushed herself down. Later on that day she came with her fiancé or new husband and uh, apologized to him formally offering flowers and incense. He just said in one bindabhak you can go from an extreme of anger and indignation right round to lustful attraction. That's the nature of life. It brings pleasant, unpleasant experiences, unexpected experiences. So we're always having to deal with that. So we have to use an array of skillful means or bias how to both establish mindfulness and then sometimes to also contemplate to let go of the different moods that are haranguing us, giving us trouble. So I have to get used to bringing up these contemplations so that they're ready. So like Lumpur put, so you just had to quickly turn to these contemplations so they're like tools he had ready for an unexpected job. In the case of indignation or anger, you have to turn to the Brahma Viharas, and Metta and Karuna, Mudita Upeka. That necessarily means you have to have been previously developing those, contemplating on a regular basis. So there are an object of mind, a skillful, wholesome object of mind you can just turn to when you see a negative thought arising in a certain situation. One can just quickly turn to the, the antidote. This is turning dukkha into maga, in the dukkha of an unpleasant situation but instead of leading, letting it lead us to make more negative karma which will bring back further negative situations. You know, somebody calls you a fake monk and you get angry and you maybe display your angry anger, you complain or say something. Well, it'll only lay the causes for further such speech to come your way, won't it? That's karma how karma works. But if you turn the dukkha of that situation into maga, and you bring up metta, or karuna, or mudita, or upeka, whatever the skillful, sublime abiding one turns to, and then it turns it into the path where one is practicing right view, right thought, and abandoning a particular kalesa, 
that's a skill that we have to develop over and over again and develop the mindfulness that will be the foundation for that to bring the mind back to its place of balance of mindfulness to know this is what I have to do here apply metta apply upeka sometimes then the mind can return to equanimity that's the path that's the path leading to Nibbāna sometimes we're able to do that very quickly swiftly other times we have to go away and work at it, think about it, meditate on it, sit and walk until we can finally let go. But it's establishing that system, putting it in place, this is what I have to do. And not judging oneself, getting upset because one has a defilement in mind, but just putting into practice the right technique to deal with it. With lust, then one similarly has to have previously been contemplating the body and the supagamatana, preparing for lust, as it were. It would be probably too late to start at that point. The mind would be too worked up. So one practices regularly. And that doesn't mean to say one will always be peaceful practicing contemplating the body or the supagamatana. But one can use it, use memory and thought to keep training the mind just to turn, to reflect on this body more deeply, to look at it and analyze it. Sometimes that will bring the mind back to equanimity, peace, mindfulness. Other times it's just more like you might say a chore that one is doing but it's still worth it because it's preparing the mind for deepening wisdom and giving it skillful means to deal with lust when lust does arise this is why we're given the gamatanas when we are ordained as a novice the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin learn them forwards and backwards order and all the other 32 parts of the body and learning to put attention on these body parts contemplate them visualize them one learns how to do this one starts to naturally if one is thinking about them memorizing them thinking about them from time to time in one's day and in formal meditation and then that again is marga. This is the path setting the mind towards insight, both calming the mind and developing insight. And it will pop up. You'll start to notice the smell of your body, say, the way this body is becomes dirty as we use it, go through our day. The things in contact with this, dirt, with this body and the clothes, the bed sheets and so on become dirty and greasy. The body itself becomes dirty, smelly, unpleasant. It's always oozing unpleasant substances. 
earwax and snot and tears and sweat and grease, urine and excrement, so on. If you have a cut, even blood and plasma and so on. One naturally starts to become aware of that aspect of the body if one is running through these contemplations. Even if not particularly peaceful yet, one starts to see. And that's laying the foundation for deeper insight, maybe at a later stage when the mind really does settle down and become calm. But even in the short term it can bring the mind to equanimity when it's tending towards delighting in sense pleasures, lust, uh, the pleasure of food and so on. We can use the things of the forest. Like we often have dead animals lying around in the forest, like deer and wallabies. You contemplate this body, what happens to it in the long run. You know, a human body is just the same as the body of a deer. When it dies, if we weren't to bury it or cremate it, just to leave it in the forest somewhere. You can imagine your own body just lying there what would happen? And just like the deer, it would start to swell up. Human body swells up. So that skin, the sort of nature of the skin, it's like a bag that holds all the organs, the liquids and the bones inside. That bag swells up with the chemical reactions that happen when uh, somebody dies, you know, the, the fire element disappears, the body goes cold and stiff. And then chemical changes, bacteria come, chemical changes occur, start to get liquids oozing from the body and the colour changes, it swells, bloats, the stomach where most of the nutrients are just bloats up huge starts, the skin starts to separate changes colour and all the veins become very obvious and it starts to burst open you get little holes and generally you get flies laying their eggs and maggots appear they start to eat all the different parts of the body inside from the inside out they start coming out of the orifices and the holes and the breaks in the skin. If you were to watch your own body decompose, you'd be seeing maggots coming out of it. And those maggots get bigger and they move around, so the whole body can appear to be moving, quivering with all the maggots eating. The smell is unbearable, very, very unpleasant smell that like the carcass of a deer just wafts through the whole forest for many, many meters around for many months. The hair drops off, it's no longer held by the glue of moisture and the heat of the body and so on, it drops off. organs inside, not only eaten by maggots, but they turn to sort of mush and turn into, uh, they go putrid, become pussy and yellow. 
then usually what happens in the forest say, with the deer, the animals come along and start eating the corpse as well, not just the maggots, but you get birds pecking at it, foxes and dingoes eating. Start to drag away bits of the meat, of the flesh of their limbs and the, off the bones, even breaking the bones off, taking them away. The juices of the body all start to ooze out, go into the earth, so the earth around the body changes colour. The skin gets ripped here and there, even little mice and rats take a bit here and there, birds peck here and there. After the maggots have eaten, they either get eaten themselves by other animals or they fly away. So the maggots go and all the main organs have gone. Maybe it's just bones with a little bit of meat and blood stained on it. Skin drying out now. Little by little the bones get broken up. The foxes and wild dogs take away bones to chew on. They get scattered around the forest. Some get buried, some get pulled away, disappear. Whatever flesh is left just dries on the bones, just dries into the earth. The earth is stained. Gradually the bones, broken up, separated, get covered over with leaves and pine needles and whatever, gradually become part of the earth and then it's gone. We've had many uh, animals die in the forest and now you can't see any trace of them where they died. Completely gone, empty, gone back to the elements. And that's something you can contemplate to cut off all kinds of defilements, whether it's particularly lust, attachment for this body, attachment to the pleasures of this world or the possessions and experiences you can have in this world or just the agitation and proliferation of a mind that is not peaceful just confront it say well you're going to die you don't know when you're going to die you're going to die what's going to happen when you're going to die is that's going to happen body will degenerate in that way and then just disappear you confront your defilement like that the way of cutting it off. So these are ubai, a skillful means you can employ to bring the mind back to balance to this place of mindfulness. Sometimes you just apply the technique a little bit is all that's needed. Other times one has to just sit or walk and really contemplate just to get the mind to accept the truth. It's always bringing the mind back to this place of equanimity where it can see and understand the nature of the five kendas are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Body or mind, feelings, the mind itself, the objects of mind are anicca, dukkha, anatta. What's born must get old and die. What's created must pass away. 
whatever mental candor you're looking at, it arises, it passes away. And just as when Kilesa comes up, we, with the delusion of self, we tend to get caught into Kilesa and it feeds a strong attachment to an idea of self. Similarly, insight helps to dismantle the sense of self. So you have insight into one aspect of these candors, the body or the mind, and then that can help to pervade your view of any other aspect of the candors, internal or external, coarse or refined, near or far. You notice when mindfulness slips and we do become attached say, to pleasant, unpleasant feeling or different thought constructions, concepts and ideas. You can just see how it's laying the, 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 a trap or the, the cause for further suffering. You know, we attach to pleasure. We like pleasant objects to see, to hear, to taste, to think about. So attaching to pleasurable vetana, whether it's physical, physically based or mentally based, you're only laying the causes for the discontent and dissatisfaction when it turns into painful vajana because your attachment to pleasure is increasing your attachment to the vajana kanda which naturally brings along all the attachment to the painful vajana kanda as well. You, one, you can't have one without the other. So that even the most highest refined pleasure is still bringing along some pain with it. This is why the Buddha encouraged us to go to equanimity of mindfulness and wisdom. This is the path. It's neither attaching to happiness or suffering, pleasure or pain. You know, the, high, the most highest refined thought, concept, idea, you can have the most interesting, satisfying thought you can have. It's still an attachment which will also bring along the attachment to the most coarse, base kind of thought. Because it's all part of the same kanda. You attach with delusion to one bit of the kanda while all the other bits of the kanda come along as well. So the wholesome and the unwholesome. You make a lot out of your unwholesome thoughts that means you're also attached to your wholesome thoughts. So if you have a sort of sense, oh, I'm angry, I'm a bad person, these thoughts are terrible, we'll still have to deal with a sense of self if the thoughts change into more pleasant, more wholesome thoughts. There'll still be a sense of self forming. You know, I'm a good person, I'm having good thoughts, and so on. But insight will help you to see through the, the candors at, in all their aspects. So you're seeing a Nietzsche in a thought, whether it's a good thought, a negative thought, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, you know, it, it pervades all of the candors, that insight. You see one, you see them all. You see one aspect of a candor, you see all the aspects of that candor. 
So true insight will, this is why it's so valuable, it brings the mind to this place in the middle, in the middle of the khandhas. Right? Satipatthana is like this, it's seeing the body as a body, just as the body, without delighting in or averse to it, to one's own, other people's bodies, beautiful bodies, unbeautiful bodies, near and far, high and low, whatever, wherever. The seeing body as the body, and therefore it's anicca, it's dukkha, it's anatta, it's not self, it's not something to be owned, just the body as the body. Feelings, just feelings. The mind, you're seeing the mind in a neutral way, or you're just observing the mind as the mind, whether it's covered over with greed, knowing this is the greedy mind, it's like this. Greed arises in this way through these causes. But this mind with greed is not something I own, it's just a condition that arises through causes. Having that objective, neutral, mindful awareness that just knows greed as greed. Greedy mind is a greedy mind, angry mind is angry mind, deluded mind is deluded. How these arise how they pass away. The non-greedy mind, how does that arise? You know, applying mindfulness, contemplating the object of the greed till the greed disappears through wisdom and insight. The non-angry mind, the non-deluded mind. You're getting to know the process where defilement arises, passes away, where Maga, Dhamma, arises, passes away, but also without a sense of self or ownership, just knowing these things as they are. So watching the mind, watching the body, learning and letting go of self within, within that learning process. And this is Maga. This is what's taking us away from Dukkha and the causes of Dukkha taking us to Niroda, the cessation of Dukkha. Equanimity and this kind of knowing in the middle is always accompanied by a sense of coolness, peace, coolness. This is why it's desirable. It's the opposite of the heat of the candors. You know, the candas, the Buddha compared to a house on fire. So even though there's plenty of things we find pleasurable and take happiness in with these candas, this body and mind, we have to keep coming back to that basic reflection, it's still a house on fire. As you attach to the pleasures of the candas, well, it brings along the pain with it. It's impermanent, unsatisfactory. Subject for discontent, cannot have constant pleasure, pleasurable experiences, and pleasure in these candors. Sanata, when you can't own them, if you try to own the candors, then it's like owning a house on fire, you keep getting burnt. 
So the one who's practicing maga is the one leaving the house that's on fire behind, coming out to where it's cool and safe and peaceful, coming to see Buddha Dhamma. One who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma, sees the Dhamma, sees the Buddha. And true refuge comes through the development of this mindfulness, this wisdom. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.